Thank you, David. We are beginning a new series for the fall. It's called Conversations with the King, where we're going to be looking at different conversations that Jesus has uh, from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so today we're in Luke chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, you want to turn there. If you don't have one, there's one in front of you. Is on page 859, 860. And we're going to be reading verses 14 through 30. Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 14 through 30. So let's stand together at the reading of God's word. Luke 4, 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Jesus. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering the sight of the blind, And to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Jesus. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their own town was built. So they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, Jesus went away. You may be seated and let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. Most of you know we've spent uh, all of last year, when I think of a year, I think of a school year in the book of 1 Samuel, the Old Testament book about the rise of the kings. And what a great study that was. And... uh, when we studied, when, when, when we looked at 1 Samuel, one of the things that we found out is that Israel was in trouble and they were in desperate need of a leader. And so God provides a leader, King David, and he's the king after God's own heart. You take that information and you remember that one good way at, at looking at the Old Testament is thinking of it as a shadow reflected back from the New Testament. So it's as if Jesus is the center 
Jesus is the center. It's not as if. Jesus is the center of all human history. And God shines his light on Jesus to say, this is the one. This is who we've been looking for. And think of Jesus standing there and a shadow being cast backwards into the Old Testament. And so as you go back to Genesis 1 and you move all the way to Malachi, you see these shadows now. You, you get a, a, a picture of what Jesus is going to look like. And of course, you can tell a lot about a tree from a shadow, but then once you, once you find the tree, it's a lot better than the shadow. And that's exactly what we did in 1 Samuel. We said, hey, there's a king, and there's going to be a king that's after God's own heart. And it's going to be kind of like David, but if you know the story of David, he, he was far less than perfect. And so he was just a shadow. He was somebody who pointed towards the real king, the true king, who would follow after God's word, who would obey and then bring the people of God along with him under his leadership. And so we're going to look at now, instead of looking at the shadows of the Old Testament, we're going to spend a, a fall staring at the sun. We're going to just look right at the sun. And there's some danger in looking straight at the sun. It causes you to change. If you stand out in the sun, your complexion changes. And so my hope is that as we spend time this fall, you're going you're gonna to look different at the end because you're going to have stood and looked at the sun. And then in January, we're going to return to 2 Samuel and then make our way through that book. Another thing I want to say before we get to Luke is as we stare at Jesus, it's important to take him seriously. And why, why would I say that? One reason I say that is because familiarity with something can breed complacency. And so you just become familiar with the stories. Yeah, I heard this story, you know, and you just kind of move on in your brain to something else. And it kind of breeds a complacency. And the way I think about it is that the, the true king, Jesus, can quickly get reduced to a condiment. And so you're like the chef of your life. And you're just pulling things out of the refrigerator and off the shelves. And you go to the grocery store and you're trying to put together a good life. And when you're in trouble, you need a good condiment for that. Jesus. And you kind of go into the refrigerator and say, I got trouble. I got to pull Jesus out and sprinkle him over my life. I need a blessing. What's a good condiment for a blessing? Oh, Jesus. And we bring Jesus out. And the way we can do it, and you don't even wake up thinking you're doing it this way, but Jesus just becomes a condiment that when you need, you sprinkle him over your life. He's real great at funerals. He's real great at weddings. He's real great at baptisms. But Jesus says he's real great at everything. In fact, in John, he says this about himself. The words I have spoken to you are life. John 10.10, I have come that you might have life. John 14.6, I am life. So according to Jesus, if you don't have Jesus, you don't actually even have a life. You don't have a life to sprinkle something over. You're, you're dead to what reality is. And when the New 
Testament people encountered Jesus, and we'll see this, and they discovered he intended to raise their souls from the dead, to change them from the inside out, to completely change their complexion by staring at the sun. They tended to have one of two different reactions, like, oh my gosh, this person's brought me life. I'd be a fool not to follow after Jesus. Or he intends to really come in and monkey with my life. And that feels threatening to me. And I, I, I just want him as an addition to sprinkle on the times I need him. But I don't need him really to overhaul my whole life. I just need tweaking. I don't need a savior. And when you have that idea about Jesus, then Jesus becomes somebody who's threatening. And you saw here in verse 4... That's the kind of reaction he brought from this crowd of Nazareth. They first liked what he said, but then he became threatening. Can you imagine? Nazareth built on a little hill. Jesus gives his first sermon. I mean, I'm so glad this didn't happen to me at my first sermon. Hey, let's take him to the top of the hill. Let's throw Jesus down the hill and then throw stones on him. Imagine that. I mean, that's threatening. They got to stare at the sun. They realized he was going to change their complexion. And then they didn't want to have anything to do with that. So they were, they were going to react violently. So my encouragement for you in this series is to, to lean forward in these conversations. Don't think, well, I've, I know this story. And my warning is if you operate like you're the head chef in your life, then Jesus is going to be threatening at some point. But allow that word to come into your soul because it's life. At that point, whatever that threatening point is, he's trying to speak to you to say, this is life. You're holding on to something. You think in a way that's crushing your soul, and I want you to hold on to something new, and I promise you to bring you Life. So here we are, Luke chapter 4. Jesus is about 30 years old. He launches his public ministry. And we know because of these familiar passages from Luke chapter 1, 2, and 3, which you always hear around Christmas season, this is like the preface to Jesus' ministry. Uh, John the Baptist is born. You remember, he's the cousin of Jesus. He's the forerunner of Jesus. There's the miraculous birth of Jesus. And then in chapter 3, John has grown up, and he's the one who's going before Jesus, and he's proclaiming, prepare the way of the Lord. He's the one who's, who's coming before the king to say, let's make sure everybody's ready for the king. And then the king comes in Luke chapter 4. But before that, notice with me in chapter 3, before he really d- uh, digs into Jesus, in verse 23, he kind of inserts this genealogy, this family tree of Jesus, which I think is very interesting to stick this in at this particular point. And it's, I think it's Luke's way of helping you understand that Jesus is the, the, the real thing, not the shadow, because he makes all these connections, and we don't have time to look back at them. But verse 31, he is the son of David. Verse 33, he's the son of Judah. This is the, Somebody's going to come out of the tribe of Judah. He's the son of Abraham. Verse 34, he's the son of Noah. He's the one who's going to bring people into an ark, a wooden ark. 
and bring them home. He's the son of Adam. He's going to be a second Adam. And he's not just a human. He's also the son of God. So I think Luke's making all these connections for us. And then we see the temptation, verse four, chapter 4, verse 1. And it's as if Luke is saying, hey, remember when Adam showed up? He didn't pass the temptation. The new Adam is going to show up. He's going to pass. And so it brings us to chapter 4, uh, chapter four verse 14, where Jesus is beginning his ministry. And he comes to his hometown. Now, we know he's been in, around the Sea of Galilee. This is this little sea up sort of the northern part of Israel. It's about seven miles wide and 12 miles long, not too big of a, 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 a sea. But this is Jesus' hometown, Capernaum, on the north shore. That's where he lives, and it's a little fishing village. He's been doing some ministry there, but Luke decides he's going to start his narrative about Jesus, not in Capernaum, but actually in Jesus' hometown back in Nazareth. Now, word's gotten out. Jesus has been doing stuff in Capernaum, and it's leaked back to the hometown, and Jesus is now taking his his trip back. And as we look at this, I want to point out two things. First, what Jesus came to do, and then how we might respond to him. So we look at this, what Jesus came to do and how we might respond to him, and we'll have some application at the end. First of all, what Jesus came to do, verse 16 through 21. By the time Jesus returned to his hometown, there was a buzz on the street. You might say in today's word, Jesus was trending. And so everybody's looking forward to Jesus. He's gotten a lot of likes on their uh, Instagram and all that stuff. And so he's coming back and everybody knows Jesus. Nazareth is a town of 500. Jesus had lived there probably 25 years with his family. Everybody had a story about some time they were with Jesus Everybody had that story about everybody in that hometown. And now he's coming back and they've heard, hey, he actually, he's a good preacher. And he does some pretty incredible things. We've heard the stories and now he's coming back. It's like the hometown boy who had been a hero. He's coming back and everybody, everybody's looking forward to his big return. And so he comes back and as is his tradition, verse 16 On the Jewish Sabbath, which is a Saturday, Jesus attends the local synagogue. And during the service, they invite Jesus to come up to speak. Now, it's hard for us because when we hear Jesus, you just think of Jesus the Savior. But Jesus is one of the most common names at this time. So it'd be like saying, hey, Mike, you have something to say today? And so Mike comes up. And when Jesus comes up and they attendant is there they hand him a scroll from the old testament and apparently jesus is free to unscroll to any particular point and talk about it and he gets the book of isaiah now there's not any chapters or verses you realize in the bible at this point just one big scroll and he unscrolls it and scrolls and scrolls and he gets down to almost the very end of the scroll which we know is chapter 61, and he reads what is verse 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Everybody would have known these verses in this synagogue. This is Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet to to Israel that we're going down 
But Isaiah is promising someone's going to come that's going to have the spirit of the Lord and he's going to be anointed. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to proclaim good news to the poor. He's, he's going to proclaim liberty to people who are captive. He's going to help blind people see and, and he's going to free oppressed people. And it, when he comes, it's going to be the year of the Lord's favor. Everybody's anticipating this person coming forward. And Jesus reads this. All eyes on him after he finishes reading. And he says, hey, what was written by Isaiah 600 years ago? God promising this person to rescue. Isaiah's words were a shadow. I'm the real thing. Talk about a mic drop moment. You know these words, you've heard them. Your parents have heard him. Everybody's waiting 600 years. Mike comes up. I'm that person. I don't don't know if anything could have been more stunning to the crowd. That the hometown boy is, is saying he's the fulfillment of this word that's been written 600 years ago. So here we want to pick up. Two things that Jesus came to do. Number one, Jesus came to fulfill Scripture, verse 21. I love this point. This could be a whole sermon series. Today, this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's he's saying all of the Scripture, not just the Scripture, all of the shadows are all pointing to me. I am the real thing. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. You remember this story, two disciples after the resurrection of Jesus, they're wandering along this road to a city called Emmaus. They're kind of bewildered. They've heard about Jesus's resurrection. They haven't seen him. They just don't really understand what's going on. And Jesus comes in sort of in disguise and has this discussion with them. And he says this to them in verse 44, trying to explain who he is. These are my words that I've spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, that's all of the Old Testament, must be, what does it say? Fulfilled. All of these Old Testament shadows, they're confirming my identities, trying to shake people and say, can't you see, can't you see? I fit all of the shadows. I'm this real thing that you've been hearing about for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Now imagine Jesus picking up or getting this scroll, Isaiah, and he's going to announce who he is. Imagine him scrolling all the way through. Where could he have stopped in Isaiah? Isaiah 7, 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And he shall be called Emmanuel. I mean, he could have stopped right there. Imagine him scrolling past that. Oh, I could stop right there. No, I'm going to go down to 61. I'm Emmanuel. Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus scrolls by that. I wonder if he just stops and just stares at it for a moment. Yeah, that's me. No, but I'm, I'm getting to 61. Isaiah 11, 
1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots. Jesse is David's father. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Who is going to be that person? Jesus doesn't stop there. I wonder if he paused at Isaiah 53. This is his very first sermon in his hometown. He's getting towards the end of the scroll. Passes Isaiah 53. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He could have stopped so many places. Because he's fulfilling all of the shadows. But he comes to 61 and he says, hey, I'm this person. The Spirit of the Lord is resting upon me and I'm going to proclaim something. That's why he's choosing this. I'm here to proclaim something. I need you to hear something. It's good news. It's good news. So the first thing that Jesus is, is here to do is to fulfill scripture. The second thing he's here to do is to proclaim. It said it's three times. You see that? Proclaim good news. Proclaim liberty. Proclaim the, the year of the Lord's favor. He's proclaiming something. He's, he's talking about something. He's a herald of something. So Jesus's priority is in his public ministry is proclamation. Proclamation. You see it even in this chapter. Look at verse 40 with me. In chapter 4. Now when the sun was setting, all those who were sick, this is probably back in Capernaum at Jesus' hometown, with various diseases were brought to him, and Jesus laid his hands on them, and every one of them was healed. Imagine this. What a, what a service. The next day, the next morning, verse 42, when it was day, Jesus departed. He went to a desolate place, and then everybody's looking for him. And they came, they sought him, they came to him. They would have even kept from him from going. But he turns to them and says, I must preach good news. That's why I came. That's my purpose. Now, why not stay and heal? That's a question I would have at that point. I mean, you are 100% effective. Nobody goes home disappointed. Everybody after the service goes back and tells their friends and they bring their sick friends. You have a 100% effective healing ministry. Jesus, why don't you stay there? Because my priority is to proclaim something. To proclaim good news. I am going to heal people, but it's always done in the way to, to get to proclamation. And I would say a couple of reasons why Jesus doesn't stay here and just do healing is that he understood, and you can see this in many conversations with Jesus, if that's what he would have done, he would have been turned into a butler. Jesus, thank you so much for the healing. Uh, I'm a little low on food. Can you kind of stock up for me? My spouse isn't acting the way they should. Can you, can you fix them? I mean, my child, man, terrible twos. Can, I mean, please, can you come in and just do something about my two-year-old? Jesus would have just turned in this, to this butler and see at that, you're at the center and he's a condiment. And Jesus understood that's the human heart. The human heart wants to be at the center and he's not going to stay doing this 
and allowing us to do that. The second thing is Jesus understands that physical miracles could give a false reading on our primary problem. Luke 2, we all know this. For unto you a child is born this day in the city of David, a what? A physician. Uh, No. A savior. See, our primary need is for a savior. So Jesus understands that. I don't know if you've ever heard this commercial. It's a radio commercial. And it's a serious commercial. It kind of catches your attention. And it's about somebody having a stroke. You've ever heard this commercial? It's two people having a conversation. And one person comes up to the person who's having a stroke. But you don't notice the person's having a stroke. They're just still. And they say, hey, why don't we go get some lunch? And then on the radio... I'm having a stroke. They can't respond. They can't speak. Did you hear what I said? I'm having a stroke. Why don't you answer me? I'm having a stroke. Jesus wants everyone who has a conversation with him to understand you're having a stroke. And lunch doesn't matter. And all these other things don't matter until you understand I'm having a stroke. And I've got to have a savior immediately before I become completely dysfunctional. So that's what Jesus is trying to do here. He's trying to have this conversation and he's trying to get into the hearts of these people. And we'll see this as we move forward. Responses to Jesus. Now, follow closely along here with me. It starts in verse 22. Jesus is coming back to his hometown. Everybody's excited. He's, he's part of their tribe. He's one of us. And I think, and I'll explain to you why I think this, that because he's one of us, I think they think, you got your, are you with me now? I'm just, you got to read for yourself. But I think they think Because they're the hometown crowd, they get special treatment. That's what I think this story is about. I mean, we're the hometown crowd. And we're all, all, all eyes are on Jesus. And this happens all the time because people want to feel like they're insiders. I mean, you feel this many times. Whether you're in high school and you're, I'm not on the inside. I, if I could get over there, I could get invited to this party and I would be on the inside. I'm not on somebody's Instagram. If I were, boy, I'd be on the inside. You got all these ways that you're trying to figure out how to get on the inside. And I think they think we're from Nazareth. So this is Joseph's son. He's one of us. He's our tribe. We're insiders. He tells them, he gives them a, a sermon, which is a portion of it is verse 18 and 19. He talks about it. Luke doesn't record it. And notice in verse 22, everybody spoke well of them. They marveled at what he said. I mean, he's, he's got the, everybody wants to shake, shake Jesus' hand. I know some of you all, you go to the right so you don't have to shake my hand. I understand that. I mean, I know who you are. I see you. I pray for you. But the real spiritual people go left so they can shake my hand. But here, Jesus, everyone wants to shake his hand. They're, they marvel at what he says. They're, they're amazed. And they say, in this Joseph's son, I don't think it's a negative. I think it's, wow, he's one of us. We got stories about him. 
all these wonderful words, I think it's a way of them positioning themselves so Jesus will do stuff for them. And the reason I think that is verse 23. Doubtless, you will say, Jesus is looking into their hearts. There's a proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown. You hear what he's saying? See, a physician, if you've got a problem, you're going to heal yourself first. So the physician has come to the family. The family deserves to special treatment. And they've heard about great things that he's done, miraculous things at Capernaum. And if he's done them for strangers, then surely he's going to do them for us. I mean, we're in line. We've positioned ourselves to get a favor by Jesus. I think that's what's happening here. Then Jesus responds to them. And here's what I want to think about as we kind of come to a close. It's two different responses you could have to Jesus. One, he's amazing. I mean, you like what he says. And because you think he's amazing, you like what what he says, you position yourself so that he owes you something. See, I give. I volunteer. I come to church. And because I do that, now you're never going to say this out loud, but I'm positioning myself so God owes me. He, he, he gives me a special favor. One way you can know you're a, a positioning person is if something bad happens to you, you say, what do you say? Why me? See, because you've positioned yourself so nothing bad can really happen to you. Jesus sees through this superficial response in verse 24, I think, is Jesus preparing them for a hard conversation. <laughs> truly, truly, I say to you, a prophet is not acceptable in his hometown. I think that's the, okay, guys, it's going to get, start getting really hard right now. And he tells them two great stories. I wish we had time to go into them. But he goes back to these two great prophets that everybody would know, Elijah and Elisha. And he tells them, he reminds them of these stories. Remember Elijah. Elijah, the person who came to Israel and said, guys, you're, you're taking advantage of your special position as Israelites. You can't just do whatever you want and come back to God. And they don't. And so God sends a three and a half year drought. And the drought is a physical reminder of a spiritual condition. You're actually spiritually in a drought. I'm trying to remind you of that. And after the drought was, right when the drought was coming to an end, Elijah could have come in and he could have helped anybody in Israel, but he didn't even go to Israel. He went to an area called Sidon. And inside that, that area is a little town called Zarephath. And he meets a poor woman who has a child and they're both dying. The woman is the most outside kind of person you can describe. She's a woman. That's not a favored status in the New Testament. She lives outside of Israel. She's not Jewish. She's poor. She has a son. There's no husband. That makes her really poor. And they're all near death. But she knows one thing. She's desperate. And she will do whatever the man of God says. I'm completely desperate, and Elijah, you want me to give you my last loaf of bread and my last drink of water, 
I'll do it. I'll do whatever you say because I'm desperate. I'm, I'm going to trust in your word. And because she trusted in Elijah's word, she actually receives favor. In 2 Kings, he talks about a story about, about a commander named Naaman, a general from Syria. Now, why would, you, why would God help a general in a country that fights against Israel? But yet he does. He chooses Naaman. He chooses Naaman to, to bless him, to heal him from his leprosy. And the reason why is because Naaman is desperate. Naaman is desperate. And he'll do whatever Elisha says. He almost misses out on his blessing, but he does whatever Elisha says. He's desperate. He has a desperate faith in God's word. And I think Jesus is making this point. The people I'm looking for are people who know they're poor They're not proud. They're not in a position to demand. They're out of desperation. They're going to faithfully follow God's word. They're not going to think that God owes them. They're not insiders. They're outsiders. They know it. Jesus comes to the most ultimate inside group, his hometown, And he looks at him and says, because of your spiritual condition, you're outsiders. And until you know you're outsiders, you can't ever get inside. Until you realize God doesn't owe you something for getting in a position, you're never going to be in position. And Jesus follows this pattern all the way through Luke. I'll just give you one example. The parable of the prodigal son, you remember this? Who's the outsider? Well, the, the, the prodigal, he goes outside. And when he comes back in, he gets to come inside. You remember the older son? The one who'd been around and positioned himself for all favor? At the end of the story, he's an outsider. See, he thought he could position himself for God's favor. He wasn't really desperate. Turns out, Luke chapter 4, the welcoming hometown crowd doesn't like what they hear. They don't want to be outsiders. They want to think they have positioned themselves for some kind of favor. And so their position of being proud is threatened. And so they drag Jesus out to a hill and try to throw him off the hill. The good news is only good if you know you're poor, you're captive, you're blind. The end of chapter 5, Jesus says to the Pharisees, Though I've only come for those who know they are sick. Let me give you three points of application. We'll pray. At Christ Community Church, we love serving people. <clears throat> Probably, I mean, there's lots of things that excite me, but just trying to get this clinic off the ground. It's going to start the um, 1st of October. We've got people who have no insurance, no way to pay, come and get some kind of help. That, that's... That's so exciting. It's been so exciting to be a part of it, to see how people have jumped in with money or talents or resources. And, and I think we really can have a model here of something that other churches can, can follow. I, I'm very excited about that. But that's not our priority. Our priority is proclaiming the good news of God. That's our priority. Now, they go together, but we have a priority Because the thing that our city needs most is the thing that I need most. I need a Savior. 
I need somebody to tell me about my condition. I need somebody to tell me about Jesus and the good news. So here at Christ Community Church, our priority is to teach the Bible. Second piece of application is a question for you. Are you proud or are you poor? I mean, have you kind of lived your Christian life positioning yourself? I think Pearson said it. I, I've checked the boxes. I've lived the checkbox Christian life. I mean, I've kind of done the right things, and so God owes me. Or are you poor? Poor people are desperate. They don't have a position. Third piece of application. Jesus throughout the book of the, uh, the Luke, and especially, I mean, the Gospels, but especially Luke, he's always eating with people that are on the outside. He's always having meals. Or he's always talking to people who are, have the wrong religion, the wrong nationality, the wrong economic status, the wrong moral compass, and they belong to the wrong political party. If you and I, according to our sermon over the summer, Romans 8 best verse in there well there's so many great verses all of Romans 8 is so you and I would be conformed to the image of his son 829 if Jesus is always talking to people who are outside who don't vote like us who don't look like us who don't speak like us and we're supposed to be conformed to his image, then how are we doing? How are you doing? See, that can be threatening. I'd just rather talk to all the lost people who are Republicans. I don't really want to talk to any lost people who are Democrats. Or you could have the other way around. You see, it's just it's very easy to fall into just for the insider people. Jesus is always on the outside. And the outside people understand, hey, I'm on the outside, I'm desperate. And the insiders can't seem to find Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we, we have this conversation here. Happened 2,000 years ago. And I pray that it's been a conversation again in this room. That one phrase, one, one point of application, something has been an, a little inside conversation that every heart and soul has had here to, to hear the Savior say, hey, on this point I'm speaking, I'm speaking to you. Would you have, give us the courage to not be threatened, to, to not just cast it away, but to really consider what you would have us do, how we could walk in a way that's glorifying to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.